This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Well, we said last week that it's a blessing to be able to pass out printed notes for different reasons, but one of the drawbacks is sometimes when you print some of the answers right under the questions, it takes away from class discussion. We had asked the question, which gospel records the most miracles? And as you can see from the notes, it's uh, Mark with 18 miracles. Um, that ties in with Mark writing initially for a Roman audience. The Romans were very interested in power and accomplishing things. And uh, uh, when it comes to the gospel, Christianity doesn't have to take a back seat to anybody, including the power of Rome. Paul, writing to the Romans, said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, of Romans 1.16. And uh, it's interesting that in the book that was written primarily for a Roman audience, you have um, more miracles recorded uh, than uh, in the other gospels. And yet it's the shortest gospel, but this is an emphasis that uh, Mark has. Um, the early church fathers said that Mark was Peter's interpreter and that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have Peter's perspective on the life of, of uh, Christ uh, told by Mark. And uh, one thing that's very interesting is that there are 16 Latinisms in the Gospel of Mark. A Latin, of course, it's written in Greek, like the rest of the New Testament, but a Latinism would be a word that would uh, originally be a Latin word that would be written in Greek letters, but it would be a Latin word like the Hebrew word amen means so be it. But uh, when we print it in English letters, we say amen, and it brings the letters over. And uh, so there are 16 Latinisms uh, more than any other book of the New Testament that would fit because uh, Mark was writing for a Roman audience and his emphasis on the miracles of Jesus. Matthew emphasizes more the teachings of Jesus, but uh, Mark emphasizes the power of Christ and uh, that would certainly appeal to a Roman audience as it well should to all audiences. Uh, before we go any further, uh, I'd like to ask Pastor Asher if he'd ask God's blessing upon our time in prayer. Father, thank you. You are a miracle-working God. Lord, you created everything out of nothing. And then you took dead sinners and you quickened us to have eternal life and your new nature. Lord, thank you that we can look into the scriptures and see your miracles and, and be taught uh, about our great God in flesh. And so, please strengthen and uh, use Dr. Yoho tonight. Give him uh, the grace he needs to uh, communicate truth. But Lord, tonight we want to be fed and we, we want to receive something from you that will help us uh, be better for you and love you more. So meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. My next question is, name one miracle and this is one of our harder questions. Name one miracle found only in Mark's gospel. Name one miracle found only in Mark's gospel. Say that again. Say that. Is that the healing of the blind man? Um, 
Yes, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark 8, 22 through 26 is one such miracle. Very good. Uh, there is one other um, in chapter 7, a deaf man in Decapolis who had an impediment of speech is healed. And they're found only in Mark's gospel. Uh, the deaf man in Decapolis who had an impediment of speech, Mark 7, 31 through 37. And then uh, the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. If you have a picture of the uh, Sea of Galilee with the Jordan the River flowing into it from the north, Bethsaida is just on the eastern side of the Jordan River uh, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but Jesus performed the miracle there um, in um, chapter 8, uh, 22 through 26. Uh, by the way, what is the Decapolis? Ten cities, yes. Um, that's what the name means, ten cities. Uh, are, are you familiar with the Decapolis within the Holy Land? Some of us have been there. Hey, well said, well said. Yeah, um, it was in the Decapolis, for example, that the demoniac of Gadara was healed. Uh, that was when the some 2,000 pigs were filled with the, some 6,000 demons and plunged down into the sea uh, off of a steep embankment. Um, yeah, you have <coughs> Perea to the east of Jordan. You have Idumea to the south in the main hill country region. You've got Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Uh, you have the Mediterranean coastline, but uh, pretty much east of the Sea of Galilee, above Perea, you've got a region called Decapolis, the uh, 10 cities. And these were cities that were um, uh, inhabited largely by Gentile inhabitants, though they were in Israel, they were largely Gentile inhabitants, and they were given the name Decapolis, which is the Greek name for the 10 cities. Here's a question that's not as hard as the last one, but uh, name one miracle found only in Matthew. Yeah, yes, ma'am? Was it the mustard seed? Uh, well, actually, I'm um, uh, thinking of a miracle rather than a parable. Of course, Jesus speaks of the miraculous power. If you had faith as in a mustard seed, you could, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, so that talks about God's wonderful power. And I have to remember what my wife said about it. So that talks about God's wonderful mountain moving power through faith. Uh, but I was thinking more of a miracle than, than, than a parable. Uh, yes, but, yes, sir. Would it be blind men? Yes, uh, yes, at the end, near the end of chapter 9 of Matthew, it's a beautiful account. You have two blind men who follow Jesus into the house where he went. And uh, Jesus says to them, believe ye that I am able to do this. And they say unto him, yea, Lord. And then he reaches forth his hand and touches their eyes and says, be it unto you according to your faith. And immediately they receive sight. Uh, that's near the end of Matthew 9. That is a beautiful account. Thank you. That is one of them. Can you think of maybe another one? Okay. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, ma'am. Matthew 8, 5 through 13, the healer of the centurion. 
period? Oh, that's a, that's a good, that's a good guess. That's also found in Luke 7, though. Right. So that's found in, yeah, that's found in, see, I'm thinking of miracles only found in Matthew. Yes. But yes, that is found in Matthew, but it's also found in Luke. But that's a great miracle. Uh, while we're on the subject, the centurion says, I'm not even worthy to come under my roof, but speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said he had not found so great faith, no, not in Israel, and he marveled. Uh, that's a wonderful, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe embarrass myself here. Is it Alva? Yes. Oh, okay, good. Uh, Alva, thank you. Uh, but uh, that, that's found in Matthew and Luke, uh, but that's a great miracle. Uh, yes, sir. There was a uh, dumb spirit was cast out in Matthew 9, 32, 33. Yes, sir. Uh, that's, that, that is, um, I'm trying to think if that was unique to Matthew. Check here. Yes, I wanted to double check my miracles chart. Yes, that is unique to Matthew and uh, very interesting uh, the people marveled and said, it was never so seen in Israel. But remember what the Pharisee said? He does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Yeah, that's right. That, that is unique. Thank you. Yes, Andrea? I just didn't hear what miracle that was. Could you say a little louder? My wife says my hearing's not the best. What miracle did he state? Oh, he said the... Uh, he said the healing of the um, demon-possessed man who was dumb, and Jesus cast out the demon, and he spoke plainly. That's in chapter uh, 9, 32 and 33, I think. Yes. Great. Thank you. Any others stand out, maybe? One you might be a little more familiar with is the coin in the fish's mouth, and towards the end of chapter 17, at the end of chapter 17. But there, there are a few of them. Um, my next question is, can you name one miracle found only in Luke? Can you name one miracle found only in Luke? Yes, sir. Uh, he, passed, yeah, he passed through a crowd unseen in Luke 4. 30. You know, that's so interesting. Um, I didn't have that listed as a miracle, but that is so interesting. Uh, um, they were about to, in Nazareth, throw him off the brow of the city, and he, passing through the midst of them, went his own way. Whether he did that miraculously or whether he, through the very force of his divine character, just walked through them and intimidated them and was calm in the face of danger. We're not quite sure all that's involved there, but uh, there could have been a miraculous touch there, yes. It's not normally listed as a miracle, but it certainly, it certainly could have that dimension. Uh, but that is a very interesting account of how he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. How did he do that when they were angry and when they threw him off the city, uh, off the brow of the city? appreciate that. That had a, certainly has a, uh, a very commanding aspect to it. Dot? Didn't he raise a widow's son? 
Yes, that's very good. In chapter 7, he raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. That was quite a dramatic scene. Jesus and his disciples were entering into the city, and there was a funeral procession coming out of the city to the cemetery, and what a meeting. And, uh, and Jesus said to the widow uh, uh, concerning her only son, weep not. Yeah, that's true. That's um, uh, Another one you might be familiar with around. Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. In chapter 23, uh, the healing of the ear uh, that uh, Peter cut off in the garden, uh, the servant of the high priest, John tells us his name was Malchus. Uh, I was just reading something recently uh, where a scholar said he feels that the Greek there uh, meant that Peter only got the ear lobe, not the entire ear, and Jesus just touched it. But, uh, uh, that, but that is interesting. That is found only in Luke. Yeah. Uh, one that you may be familiar with is in chapter 17. Sometimes pastors will like to preach about this around Thanksgiving using the great text, Where are the Nine? But the healing of the ten lepers, uh, and then only the Samaritan returning to give thanks unto God. So these are some of the miracles that are unique just to Luke. Um, this question might be a little easier. Name one miracle found only in John. Found only in John. Yes, sir. Is that where uh, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead? Yes, in chapter eleven. Uh, that's found only in John, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you think of a few others? Yes, the healing of the blind man, uh, blind from birth in chapter nine. Um, uh, that's, in fact, the whole chapter is devoted to um, that miracle and his testimony afterwards. Uh, here's an interesting thing. It's interesting to see how the chapters are put together in the Bible. In chapter eight, Jesus announces I am the light of the world. In chapter 9, he gives a wonderful demonstration of that by opening the eyes of a man born blind. But as a result of the man's testimony for Jesus, the leaders of the Jewish people cast him out of the synagogue and um, disinherit him. But Jesus finds him and wins him to himself and loves him to himself as the good shepherd. And then you go into chapter 10, he talks all about how he is the good shepherd and cares for his sheep. So it's kind of nice to see how the chapters flow from one to the other. Yes, sir. Jesus changing water to wine. Yes, the miracle in Cain of Galilee, uh, where Jesus turned the water into wine in chapter 2, 1 through 11. This beginning of miracles that Jesus in Cain of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. I'm hoping we can do an exposition of that toward the end of our class, maybe the last two sections. That's a tremendous miracle. Can you think maybe of one more? Yes, sir. Well, they passed through a crowd in the temple in uh, John 8, 59. Uh, yes, uh, one day had picked up stones to stone him after he said before Abraham was, I am. And uh, that raises that same question as in Luke 4. Uh, uh, I think around verse 30, where he passed through the Nazareth crowd and uh, was untouched. So I think you have something similar. And I mean, they really went to kill him. They had picked the stones up. They were, they were as mad as hornets. But um, somehow he, his hour had not come and he passed through. And there very well could be a divine dimension there. 
One of the most interesting things, this is not normally mentioned as a miracle, but when the soldiers came to arrest them in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18, one through nine, and um, he, in a sense, disarms them with his calm. He comes to them. They were gonna search him out with lanterns. Imagine uh, looking for the light of the world with a lantern, you know? They were gonna try to search him out with lanterns. He comes before them and says, whom seek ye? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what Jesus said? I am he. And remember what the soldiers did? They fell backwards and then down on their face. One of the things we used to like to ask the college students is, what was there about Jesus' simple answer? I am he that made them reel back and fall on their face. And uh, I give about seven or eight possible explanations there, like his reputation for miracles and all. Uh, but did he authoritatively say, as only he could say it, I am he, with the I am shining through? It's uh, an interesting question, but uh, they were disarmed when they came to take him. And so you might have something like that in Luke 4.30, where he passes through the crowd of Nazareth, and uh, in John 8.59, uh, when they pick up stones to stone him, and he simply passes through. Um, I am not a Calvinist, uh, but I um, do respect the life of John Calvin very much. When Calvin came to bring reforms to Geneva, uh, and uh, it was a very wicked city, very wild, and Calvin imposed a lot of laws, a lot of people didn't like him. And uh, there was this great gathering in Geneva, and they wanted to lay hands on Calvin and, and kill him. And Calvin bears his chest and says, basically, who will be the first to strike? And he had such dignity and such calm and such a divine presence that the crowd was just disarmed. And he just walked out. Uh, it was said that when the Gauls came and attacked the Senate at Rome, they were overawed by the wisdom and the dignity of the senators. and. Uh, we're afraid to strike. Some interesting stories. To some extent, um, a commanding human presence in the presence of God can account maybe for some of this, but certainly, sir, Jesus's power too uh, very well could be involved, amen. Uh, but these are a number of the miracles uh, uh, that you've already you know, brought up uh, and uh, the healing of the nobleman's son the second miracle done in Cana of Galilee in chapter four would be another, the healing of the man who was infirm 38 years at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five. But um, uh, you, you've done a good job picking out some of these miracles. These are not easy questions. Here's a question that might be a little easier, especially since it's by way of repetition. Name the one miracle recorded in each of the four gospels, not counting the resurrection. Uh, name the one miracle recorded in each of the four Gospels that's uh, it's found only, excuse me, let me reword that. Name the one miracle that's recorded in each of the four Gospels. Yes, Doc. 
Right, the feeding of the 5,000, and we spent some time on that earlier in the semester, and uh, that's the only one found in all of the Gospels. Uh, and this is interesting. According to one scholar, 92% of the Gospel of John is unique to John. You don't find any parallel material in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one point where they do come together is in that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Uh, but so much of the material in John is unique to John. Um, as he takes a lot of supplementary material and shares it in addition to what we have in the Gospels. And it casts a wonderful light as to the meaning of those well-known events in the Synoptic Gospels that had been shared years before. One of his purposes was to supplement them with all kinds of interesting material that would shed heavenly light on their understanding of what they had been talking about for some years. I put an extra question in here, uh, if you'd write this down. How many people did Jesus raise from the dead? This is not in your syllabus, but if you could add this question. How many people, according to the record, did Jesus raise from the dead among his miracles? Uh, Judy? Yes, sir. Three, yes. He may have raised more people from the dead than that. Uh, when John the Baptist sent two people from the prison to say, art thou he that should come or look we for another? And uh, Jesus said, go and show John again those things which ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and um, the deaf hear and the poor have the, uh, he says the poor have the gospel preached to them, but he says the dead are raised. Uh, so he may have done this on a number of occasions, but the only three recorded instances that we have specifically are uh, three. Can you remember what those three were? Yes, sir. The uh, court Lazarus, and he had to say Lazarus by name because if he didn't, everybody in the grave would change. <laughs> That's a favorite preaching point, yes, sir. Uh, the boy that was born to the old couple, and then the girl. Okay, Jairus's daughter, the ruler to say, and what was that about the old couple? The little boy that was late in life? It's Old Testament. Oh, uh, I, I, Pastor Asher says that's Old Testament, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Elisha and Elijah both raise uh, a boy from the dead in the Old Testament. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, so, but, but you have the widow of Nain's son, yes, in, in Luke 7. That would be the other one Jesus did. But there are great miracles in the, in the Old Testament where you have a raising from the dead. Um, I think one of the most interesting stories, uh, there are bands of Moabites who are raiding the country. There are these men who are wanting to bury somebody, but there's these bands of, this is in 2 Kings 13, and uh, they uh, don't want to get you know, attacked or anything. And so they try to find the nearest tomb they can to put the body in. 
and they uh, put the, they kind of hastily, they put the body they're going to bury in Elisha's tomb. And as soon as the body touches the bones, it raises from the dead. That's an interesting one. Pastor knew where I was going with that. Um, I, I think that's the, can you imagine those men when they saw that? <laughs> I, I was told the story that many years ago at a funeral, and in this particular case, they did not embalm the man. And um, there, during the, you call it visitation or viewing, but they're at the funeral home when the people were gathered and all. Um, I think up north they often call it viewing, down south more visitation, I think. But um, somehow there were some gases in the man's stomach or something. And while people were gathered around the car for coffee, he went, <laughs> and uh, I think there were doors in the walls, you know. But, um, uh, but can you imagine, though, when that man actually did rise from the dead, you know, after he touched Elisha's bones, that was, that was something. Um, there, there is a lady, good friend of mine, and Joyce is now with the Lord, a woman uh, that we know, <coughs> I believe is a very honest and honorable lady. And uh, she told me this story. And she says it happened in our community. This was in Central North Carolina. And she says it was well known. I still have a little trouble believing it, but. But she is a very honorable lady. And she said, this dear wife said goodbye to her husband, and they buried him thinking he was dead. But he really wasn't. Years ago. And there were some very mischievous, sinful youth who shortly after the burial ceremony broke into the cemetery, opened the casket to try to see if they could find some wealth. But somehow, when the corpse or the body was exposed to the cool air, it came alive. Must have really scared those kids. Scared those kids? According to Mrs. Mooneyhan, the corpse got up out of the casket, climbed out of the grave, walked about a block from the cemetery, walked through the front door of his house, and his wife saw him and fainted. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, 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 I have a lot of respect for that dear lady. That's, that's, uh, anyway, but uh, can you imagine how Elijah's, uh, uh, Elisha's, uh, those men, when, when he touched the bone, uh, enough of this. <laughs> um, but let me just say a few words about chapter 11 of John. Dwight L. Moody, early in his ministry, was asked to bring a funeral message. And of course, in the nature of the case, it kind of happened pretty quickly. A person unexpectedly died, and they're asking Mr. Moody to come up with a funeral sermon. He leafed through the Gospels trying to find one of Jesus' funeral sermons, and he couldn't find any. 
he found out that Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death could not exist in the presence of the Prince of Life. I was a philosophy minor in college. Please don't hold that against me. <laughs> Some people say that philosophy is the um, discipline of trying to make simple ideas complex. Somebody said that modern education may be defined as that process that takes a man from cocksure ignorance to thoughtful uncertainty. <laughs> but uh, I took two semesters of a course called History of Western Philosophy. And in what they called the rationalistic school of Western philosophy uh, in the modern period, there was a well-known rationalist philosopher named Benedict Spinoza, S-P-I-N-O-Z-A. Now he was Jewish by birth, he was a rationalist, and he was a pantheist, believing everything is God and God is everything. And uh, he was also a strong critic of the Bible. But sometimes an unbeliever can make a statement that's very insightful and revealing. He can sometimes see the implications of our great Christian faith better than we can. It was like what an atheist once said to a Christian who was witnessing to him. If I could only believe one-tenth of what you Christians say you believe, I'd be ten times more excited than most of you. <laughs> but Spinoza saw the implications of the gospel. And he said, if I could only believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb in John chapter 11. He didn't believe it, but he said, if I only could. He said, I would tear my rationalistic system of philosophy to shreds and humbly accept the creed of Christians. Well, I'm happy to report that of those scores of witnesses around Lazarus's tomb in Bethany, on the afternoon, that, on the day that Jesus came, not a single one of them entertained the slightest doubt that he that was dead came forth. Corey Ten Boom says, Jesus always raises the level of the impossible. There in chapter 1137, the people say, if Jesus had only been here before Lazarus died, if he had only been here, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind have also raised the dead? That was stretching their faith. Uh, excuse me, uh, he that opened the blinds, could he have prevented this man from dying? He who opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have prevented this man from having died? And they were saying, that's stretching our faith. But Jesus raises the level of the impossible. He's about to raise that dead man from the grave and say, Lazarus, come forth. Death looked like it had won once again, but Jesus appears before the tomb and is preparing a shattering challenge to death's monopoly. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, and as one commentator beautifully says, never before had death looked so helpless. <laughs> now, it's our part to remove the stone. It's Jesus' part to raise the dead. Only Jesus could raise the dead, but before he did, he said, roll away the stone. Of course, Martha objected and said, he's been dead four days now, Lord, and 
decomposition has set in. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that uh, if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? It's man's part to remove the stone. It's Jesus' part to raise the dead. Similar thing in Acts 12. Uh, it was uh, the angel's part to have all those soldiers asleep who were guarding Peter. And it was the angel's part to have his bonds fall off. And it was the angel's part to open the prison door and uh, open the uh, iron gate leading out into the city. Some preachers like to say that's the first instance of, uh, of uh, automatic door in history. And uh, only the angel could do that with God's power. But he slaps Peter on the side and says, wake up and uh, throw your robe around you and put on your sandals. He didn't put the sandals on for him. He didn't uh, lift them up. He did not uh, put the rope around them. Peter could do that. Uh, we need to do what we can and then look to God to do what only he can. Without God, we cannot. Without us, often God will not. Salvation is God's work, but evangelism is our part. And if we'll do our part with God's help, he can do what only he can do. Now, Paul can plant, Apollos can water, but only God can give the increase. I heard a song some years ago, a few years ago that said, two days late, but always on time. He was two days late, but always on time because he was going to do something more than prevent him from dying. He was going to get there after he died and then raise him from the dead. I think that therefore in John eleven six is very interesting. When Jesus knew therefore that uh, he was sick, he waited four days. In other words, you would think that he would rush if he knew that he was sick and get there before he died. But it says he delayed going. He waited two more days and then went and by the time he got there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Uh, sometimes God will not do something we would like him to do in the way we would like him to do it. And we would say, why, Lord? It says because he loved. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. But when he heard that he was dead, he delayed two days. And then went, because he was going to even want to do a greater miracle for the glory of God than uh, what people thought. So some very interesting lessons there in John chapter 11. Question, in which location did Jesus do most of his miracles? In which location did Jesus do most of his miracles? Okay, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. kind of a three-part answer. You got two of the parts. <laughs> let, me, let me throw in the Sea of Galilee there too. Most of Jesus's miracles were done in Galilee, but you have also some done around the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee, like walking on the water. So most of his miracles were done in Galilee and uh, a lot were done around the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, oh, thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Um, 
but Jesus made Capernaum. Uh, let's see if I could illustrate this on a map. Imagine that this is the waters of Merom, the Jordan River flowing into the Sea of Galilee. When the Jordan River flowing from the north empties into the Sea of Galilee, if you go two miles to the west on the Sea of Galilee from where the Jordan enters into it, you have the city of Capernaum right on the shoreline of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And that was Jesus' headquarters for his greater Galilean ministry. That was where Peter's house was and all. He did some miracles there. And so um, the, the, cities, the city in Galilee where Jesus did most of his miracles were more are mentioned in Capernaum than any other city. Uh, we also know from what he said in John 11 that Chorazin and Bethsaida were also cities where he did a lot of miracles. Now he did some miracles in Jerusalem too. John will focus on that. Uh, but um, most of his miracles would be kind of in Galilee and the Sea of Galilee area. Um, another question. Name one recorded miracle of Jesus that is left unrecorded. What? <laughs> Name one recorded miracle of Jesus that is left unrecorded. See, that doesn't make sense. You say, that doesn't make sense. Joyce? What's, what's that there? I can't quite hear you. Oh, uh, I was actually, actually, honey, I was thinking of miracles that are actually recorded in the Gospels. There are some great miracles today, too. But what miracle is recorded in the Gospel that wasn't recorded? Yes, sir. Tribute money is provided. Yes, that's what I'm after, and that is not an easy question. Thank you. Uh, sir, what's your name? I'm sorry. What's your... Howard. Thank you, Howard. Would you mind reading that passage for us? Chapter 17, I think it's 24 through 27 of Matthew. The coin in the fish's mouth. As Howard reads that, listen very carefully to the wording. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, yes, and when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers, Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest they should offend them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. Thank you. Isn't that a wonderful miracle? Jesus says, go to the sea, cast a hook in, first fish that you take up, open his mouth, and you will find the uh, amount that will take care of the temple tax for both you and me. And it was the exact amount for two people's temple tax. It never says that Peter went to the sea, cast into the hook, opened the fish's mouth, and got the money. 
That's interesting. This recorded miracle is in a sense unrecorded. The idea is we have as believing readers who have studied the life of Jesus and walked with him and experienced him in our own hearts and in our own circumstances. We have so much confidence that if he says it's gonna happen, it will happen. That we don't even think that there's no statement that says that's what happened. Because Jesus said that's what will happen and so we assume it happened and we rightly assume that. Now, somewhat along the same lines, Howard, would you read for us Isaiah 50 verse six? There are five servant songs in Isaiah 40 through 66. The third one is in Isaiah 50 verses four through 11. And in that third servant song about the coming Messiah, notice what it says in chapter 50 verse six, Howard. 50 verse six, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Thank you. We are told that when Jesus was abused by the soldiers between his trial and crucifixion, or around the time of his trial and crucifixion, they plucked off the hair of his cheeks. They plucked off his beard. They ripped it out. And we believe that that's a prediction of our Lord's sufferings. There is no reference in the New Testament to that happening. Prophecy is so amazing that it not only gives prophecies centuries in advance that is fulfilled in detail. God's prophecies are so confident he can even give us a detail that's not recorded in the New Testament and we add it into our total understanding of the picture. That's how amazing prophecy is. And Jesus' ability in miracles is so great that when he says, you'll find that coin in the fish's mouth, we just assume that Peter did, and we rightly assume that. So there's a sense in which that is a recorded miracle that's unrecorded in terms of the actual doing of it, but uh, it certainly did happen. Draw a contrast. Oh, no, sorry, I have another question here. I, I, actually, I put another new question in here. Interpret John 6, 21. Interpret John 6, 21. Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. In John 6, 16 through 21. A great storm arises and uh, they're in danger of going under. And in the midst of the storm, I believe somewhere in the middle of the lake, which at its greatest length is about seven miles wide, Jesus comes walking on the water. And uh, he gets into the boat. And then notice what verse 21 says. Would somebody read chapter 6, verse 21 for us? Andrea, thank you. Thank you. They willingly received him into the ship, verse 21 of chapter 6, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now, what's that mean? Immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. 
they probably, he probably got into the boat somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There were probably at least a few miles before they got to their destined shore. What's it mean immediately the ship was at the land? Instantly. Instantly? Right back where they started. Yes, sir? Right back where they started. Oh, I think it meant that they went to the other side, but they, got, they instantly got to the land on the other side. Yes, sir. You think they got there immediately? Right. Or just real fast through the water? Immediately. They probably moved the drive and there. Okay. Yes, sir. I, it, I, I have always read it as immediately because it reminds me of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch after he had ministered to the eunuch. He immediately was right back. Yeah. He yeah, he was caught up. Yeah. Dr. Coles, you were going to share something, I think, or? She said, were you going to share something? I'm sorry, I thought maybe. Anyway, yes, Elvin. I have a note in my Bible from uh, February 19, 2012, and it was said that it was the destiny of Christ and the progress of a force of God's destiny. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, cer it's, certainly, uh, it certainly shows that when Christ came, uh, history had a, had a moment of destiny, that's for sure. I've wondered about this verse, Elva. Could it mean that when Jesus got into the boat where they willingly received him, after all that excitement, that they were so taken up with him, so just trying to come to terms with the events, so overwhelmed that it seemed like time passed so quickly that before they knew it, they looked and they were already at shore. Is that what it means? Or should we take it more literally? Immediately the ship was at the land where they were going. Yeah, maybe another miracle within the miracle, not only the walking on the water, but you see, God is omnipresent. He's not limited by space. Now, man is finite. He has to be at one space at one time. But in Christ, in Christ, can space be transcended, at least in a measure? And in Christ, could they arrive at the shore without the boat ever passing through the intervening three or four miles between the middle of the water and the shore. In other words, could God have transcended space and they not pass through that water? They were immediately there. I guess he could have done it so fast that it was zoom and they went through the water and they were immediately there. But is it possible that in the omnipresence of Christ, I mean, he says in, to Nicodemus in John 3.13, uh, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that descended, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He's talking to Nicodemus right there in Jerusalem, but he's the Son of Man in heaven too. He's everywhere. And he's not limited by space. Could it be that the boat arrived on the shore without ever passing through the intervening distance? And in which case, we'd have another miracle. <laughs> um, now, Think about the rapture of the church. Thank you, Doc. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and 
a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we arrive at heaven's shore. Yeah. Um, th thank you. That's, that's exactly. Um, you see, thank you, because you, you, um, we're told that the nearest star to planet Earth is Alpha Centauri. It's in our backyard, as far as the universe is concerned, four light years away. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That would mean in one second it goes around the equator, if we thought in those terms, uh, some six, seven times. It takes four light years, light traveling at 186,000 miles a second, to uh, get from the star, the nearest star to Earth, apart from our sun. But our telescopes have seen stars that are billions of light years away. Space is so huge. And if we're correct that the third heaven is beyond the starry universe, and we've not seen the end of the universe, but if the third heaven is beyond the starry universe, how can we travel through all that distance so fast? It would take a rocket ship traveling at about 50,000 miles an hour decades to get to Pluto. How could, and, uh, if, if John being caught up to heaven uh, with the trumpet-like voice come up hither in John 4.1, if that represents the rapture of the church in the chronology of Revelation, and if in the symbolism of Revelation the 24 elders who are seen seated on seats, Greek thronoi, thrones, casting their crowns before the Lord there in chapter 4, we get the impression that they've already been to the judgment seat of Christ and rewarded. And the time seems so short. Christ is so eager to reward his church when the time finally comes that he says, I come quickly and my reward is with me even to give unto every man according as his work shall be, Revelation 22, 12. He's eager to reward us. And I believe the judgment seat of Christ will take place very shortly after the rapture. I believe there's a short period of time between the rapture and the tribulation, represented by the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, when the Lamb breaks the first seal of the seven-sealed scroll in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Then you have the Antichrist uh, going forth on the white horse, conquering in the conquer and trying to rise to power. You tie that into Daniel 7, once the ten nation revived Roman Empire is in place with the ten horns or the ten leaders, then when it's in place, the little horn, very small beginnings, comes out of almost nowhere but rises quickly. I think that's what we have with the rider on the right horse in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. And so that's getting ready for the start of the tribulation. He's got to get into power in the West consolidate his power in this 10-nation confederacy. Only then, as the Western leader, can he sign the political peace pact with Israel in Daniel 9.27, and the seven years formally begin. So while I definitely believe that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, and I don't believe a long time before, I do believe there's that short interval. And in that short interval, however short, the judgment seat of Christ has already been completed.
how can we travel all that distance? Well, maybe when we're caught up in the air and we follow the captain of our salvation as he leads many sons unto glory, maybe we'll just zoom through space. Zoom. Much faster than the speed of light. And maybe near the beginning of the journey, and I wish I could do this. I've always admired preachers could do this. I can't do it, and I really wish I could do it now. You ever know preachers who can just click their fingers and snap their fingers, and it's a nice big crackly snap? That's what I wish I could do. I can't do it. Nothing there. But the Lord would just, you know, click his fingers, and all of a sudden we'd be on heaven's shore immediately without ever passing through the intervening distance. Though finite creatures in Christ, we would participate in a measure in his omnipresence and in him be there right away. It wouldn't have to be a long, long time. The possibilities are fascinating, aren't they? Um, but thank you, Pastor, for that connection. I, I, oh, thank you. <laughs> the question I'd like us to start with next week is, how did John build his gospel around the seven miracles that he records? How did John build his gospel around seven of Jesus' miracles? And Lord willing, we'll start there next week. Thanks so much for being here tonight. It's a blessing just to interact with you. I probably could have covered more material if I didn't tell you those dumb stories earlier. But, um, but thank you for being here, and we'll look forward to our study next week. One thing I want to do next week and spend some time on is there are four words in the Greek New Testament that describe Jesus' miracles in the Gospels. And I'd like to do a little word study of them with you next week. And uh, that's a fascinating study. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.